Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Infinitely Prefer a Book. Today, I'm discussing Mrs. Sherlock Holmes by Brad Ricca with my friend Melody. Melody and I worked together for several years. Together, we had big goals to smash the patriarchy. Melody is also my go-to person to keep me um, up and hip in line with the millennials and the hashtag culture, um, so she keeps me young. Um, even though we're the same age, I'm just an old lady. So, Melody, welcome to the podcast. Catherine, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. I haven't, um, I haven't gotten to talk to you in a long time, so it's really fun to have you on the podcast. I know. I love it. We used to spend 40 hours a week adjacent sitting at our desks, so I, I'm excited to catch up and I'm excited to, to talk with you. Yeah, I'm so cool. Um, so what is keeping you busy these days? What projects do you have going on? Oh, girl, I am, I am very busy but very good busy. Um, since you've left where we work, it's gotten, it's gotten bigger. There's been expansion. So definitely work is keeping me busy. And then my side hustle is I am a part-time PhD student. So I am work during the day and, and school during the day and sometimes the nights. Yeah. Not that's so right cool. Now. I, you got, yeah, you essentially kind of got promoted or you not essentially you did get promoted, um, to kind of, I remember that was exciting yeah. um, to kind of be the leader of everyone. Yeah, that is definitely the boss lady. I am the boss lady, which is something that's been pretty exciting and pretty fun a little over a year ago. Yeah. About a year and a few months ago was able to transition and navigate some new challenges and, and what comes with being a lady boss, which I've liked definitely some, some learning moments and hopefully I'm doing okay. That's so cool. I'm excited for you. And then in your PhD program, um, what are you, what's your specific focus? I'm, ex which I'm, by the way, so awesomely stoked for you to be a PhD student. I'm super jealous. Yeah. Uh, well, jealous. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> don't be great. jealous. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody can do it. I, I always, I have somebody told me this a long time ago that bigger dummies than you have accomplished the same goals that you're trying to accomplish. So every time I think like this is really hard or this is challenging, I know that other people that are either the same level as, as smart as me or even less smart than me have accomplished the same goals. So it's, I just tell myself it's not that hard or, or how hard could it be? And then sometimes I just spiral. Um, no, I think, <laughs> I, I think, you know, my focus is, or I know that my focus is in public health and trying to figure out what ways that health systems can make a bigger impact or a bigger footprint in the community space or in, in programs that are sustainable. And I think a lot of folks can relate to really good programs, get a couple of years of grant money or some seed money, and they, they start to move the needle or start to do really great work in a community space. And then either the person that was leading that project leaves, the grant runs up, or the outcomes Whoever is funding that grant expects outcomes to come faster than population health moves. And so kind of figuring out how can we make more sustainable programs so we don't always see these new programs and then, you know, just kind of this turnover all right. the time. Right. Yeah. Keeping longevity within the community to keep um, forward movement on initiatives, which I think is so cool. Yeah. Um, so is your PhD going to be, cause I feel like I, I really don't know anything about public health PhDs. Um, I was talking with someone earlier tonight. I was at a happy hour and, um, she's in school and I was like, oh my gosh, like 
I took a break after my, my master's degree and I just like, I've never wanted to get back out of that break um, because school is so, uh, such a challenge sometimes, but is the PhD program, like, is it a practice focus or is it research focused or is it kind of a mixture of both? It's definitely research focused and how I've made it manageable or digestible is I took one class or one and a half classes in the fall and I'm only taking two classes this spring. And that's been really helpful. Just kind of going at a slower pace. People keep asking me, how long do you think this is going to take? And I, at this point, I don't really have a good answer Mm because I'm not trying to, I'd I'd rather survive than try and cram it in and get it done. Right now, I think the, my, my, core courses will be pretty research focused. I do know we have a couple of classes that will get us like right now we're doing a primary data collection course. And so we're actually doing a bit more of the applied work. There's a grant writing class that'll come down the pipeline. A couple other things that will actually have tangible results. Other things will be feel a lot more like traditional school, writing papers, doing research, Mm -hmm. etc. That's so cool. That's awesome. So that keeps you, you're just like super busy. And on top of everything, um, I know you guys love to travel. Have you been traveling anywhere fun lately? Well, but I was just in Salt Lake City, but that was for work. But it's fun work. But Tim and I have a big trip coming up in May. We are going with my family and we are doing one of the treks into Machu Picchu in Peru. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yes. That's so cool. Yeah, it'll be really fun. So is that like something that you're training for? Well, oh, well if you mean doing the stair step or occasionally at the gym, <laughs> then okay. yes, I am in, I'm in some pretty strenuous training. I <laughs> and be. you're really fit in general, right? So yeah, I mean, I'm just you know, banking on the, Machu Picchu is great. <laughs> yeah, I'm banking on the fact that I ran a marathon last year as is going to be Sheesh, good enough. girl. Well, man, it'll be, wow. have been a year. So, you know, I I should maybe be better. I think that carries over. I'm pretty sure like all exercise just like, you know, it's cumulative. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be fine. It's it'll be it'll be great. Again, how hard could it be? Well, I'll let you know. (laughs) Right. Do this again. And it'll be uh, (laughs) a a year anniversary. And I'll either say, yeah, I I wish if I could go back and tell my my past self, maybe I would say train. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw um, you guys were just in Rome. Yeah, we were. Um, we were in Rome for a week. My husband, as you know, is in medical school, um, and he only gets so many breaks. Um, well, he gets a lot of breaks, but they're dictated at certain times of the year. Sure. And so um, he and he has them only for a week at a time. So we just flew in. Um, we actually went to Italy last year, so I kind of feel a little greedy the fact that we went to Italy twice um, in two years. But it's okay. We um, last year we had like traveled f- different like four or five cities in Rome or in Italy, and then this year we decided to stick to Rome and kind of take a more relaxed approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really fun. We did like um, some olive oil tasting, and we made a, had a pasta making class. So we know that when we travel, we really like to do local experiences um, in addition to kind of seeing the famous sites, yeah. but. Um, so that's kind of our style. So it was really fun. And I'm just, I feel like I'm just now getting back to normal from my jet lag because yes. I was waking up at like crazy hours in the middle of the night, like wide awake. And I'm like, this is not okay. I've got to go to work tomorrow. So kind of. Yeah. A thing. I love Rome. And I know you, I remember you guys were just there last year. So I love that you got to go again. 
Yeah, it was really fun. It was kind of unexpected. We didn't plan it far in advance. Um, we kind of decided uh, John's schedule kind of opened up in a way that just worked really well. So we we're like, hey, we're going to take the chance and go. So I love it was it. really fun. Um, yeah. So another thing that was is fun about you that I remember from when we were coworkers, you hosted um, with your friends a grilled cheese contest. And I wanted to hear about that, if that's still going strong and, and how that's going. Yes. The grilled cheese games, the fourth installment are in April 12th of this year. I am so excited. It's one of those those activities that we just kind of dreamed up one day and I was thinking like, wouldn't it be fun to do something kind of creative, kind of fun? That I love hosting people. My husband, Tim, and I, we always kind of joke that we bring lots of different people from our lives and bring them together. And we have so many situations where our friends have become friends with other friends. So I just force people into the same room and just assume they're going to be friends <laughs> with each other. And so with the grilled cheese games, the first year we were just, we kind of thought, are people going to actually get into this? What if everybody thinks this is a dumb idea or makes the same sandwich? And people loved it. We had people, I mean, I think the first year we probably had like 10 different sandwiches and people took over my kitchen. And I, I live in a small little house in South City that it has lots of walls and very little counter space, but it was great. It was amazing. And then the second year where we kind of invited more people because we got really positive feedback. And uh, that was the best year because at that time, Catherine, you had already left, but in our little pod at work, there were three of us. It was Claire, Jill, and myself. And it was the chow sweep because I got first place, Claire got second place, and Jill got third. And we had trophies <laughs> at work. My trophy is still at work. It says world's greatest grilled cheese. <laughs> That's awesome. We did. There was. We still have um, questions about cheating because I'm hosted, did the evaluation, and won. But I, if I didn't. I think it, that's fair. I, I mean, I deserve to win if I'm going to host it. You evaluate things for a living. Yes. You're clearly unbiased. I think that's just exactly. And I made a really great sandwich. And then, <laughs> then last year we had to kind of pose the rule that couples that were coming, you had to work as a team because we had so many sandwiches the second year because people would be like, Oh, my partner and I, or my, my husband and I, or my boyfriend and I, we were, we made two different kinds. And it, there was so many grilled cheese sandwiches because <laughs> you just kind of cut them into little, imagine like half inch by half inch squares and that's all you're eating. But over the course of the night, it's probably three fold grilled cheese sandwiches. And so <laughs> um, last year it was an Olympics theme because the winter Olympics had, you know, had just been previous. So we had like an American flag and we, when the winners won, we sang the national anthem and which was That's awesome, like without even <laughs> scripted, it just kind of happened. And so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm getting some ideas about what the, the in you know either the trophy or what that's going to look like this year, but people really, we've yet to have anybody go white bread, American cheese, uh, which I think might actually win because that's such a childhood yeah. memory. I mean, but that's kind of like a sleeper thing. Like yeah. You just come in and win and, the whole thing. Right? So we'll see. Well, I've, I've got, a, I've been practicing. I've got a couple working on a couple of different um, potentials. And it's, I reckon, oh, it's, it's a lot of fun to make all your friends eat grilled cheese sandwiches and hang out at your house. <laughs> 
That's awesome. I, I admire you and I love the um, creativity that you have. And just, I love that you said that you bring everybody together because I, I remember that about you. You definitely are sort of that cohesive um, glue in a lot of the teams that we were in. So that's awesome. Um, I always ask my guests what their reading style is and um, sort of when they find time to read because now you're going to school at night. I know when I when I was in school, um, reading for fun was just really tough to do. Do you find that you find time to read now? Yeah, and reading has always been something that's been really important to me ever since I was a kid. I've been a really big bookworm. And I find that with if I was to remove reading, I would actually probably be more stressed and it's better to kind of have that I'm, while I'm very chatty and I love people, I'm a true introvert. And almost always I find myself reading as how I recharge and how I can like sustain and keep myself healthy is making sure that I have alone time. And then whenever I'm, I don't watch TV really, cause I don't want the noise as much. Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't recharge me the same way as silence does. Right. And so I find myself kind of with a book pretty often simply because I'm going to a quiet space just to kind of maintain my well-being. I also really in the last couple of years have and have moved into audiobooks and that has been something that I found that I I really enjoy because then you're in the, you're in your car listening to a book or sometimes at work there are some tasks like some some things that occasionally if I'm like cleaning my desk or if I'm trying to visualize something like today I was doing some sketches figuring out how I wanted to translate something onto like maybe an infographic like mm-hmm. that's a great mm-hmm. way that I can yeah. use two different sides of my brains. I can be listening to a story and then also visualizing something. Right. So I, I guess that is definitely one way that I can take in books. But then, you know, I I have the app for my library so I can get ebooks. I check books out. I listen to books. I just like to, I like to have yeah. at least one book going. Sometimes like three even. That's awesome. That's that's really good. I'm, I'm, um, that's exciting. And do you like to read fiction or nonfiction or a mixture of both? A mixture of both. I think I typically lean fiction, but I've been one of my like adulting things is to read more nonfiction books because I feel like I learned something from them, but then I give myself a pass because I'm going to school. So I don't have to learn. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm learning. I got plenty of learning I'm doing right now. I, I can just kind of <laughs> step back and read the number one New York Times bestseller that might be a, pl- a fluff piece, but it's fun and it, you can read it in a sitting, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, I I've been reading. Um, I don't know what has been, but the last couple of we- months um, have just been kind of stressful for me. For I don't even I can't even pinpoint it, but um, like I know I was supposed to read this book um, and, and prepare for the podcast, but I kept just reading what I have heard recently described as dessert books and they're just like really fluffy. I'm like, I just need the um, relaxation that comes with reading a little bit more mindlessly sometimes. Because sometimes I try, I'm like, they're not smut because it's not, it's not a romance smut. It's not fluff because it's, I think of fluff as like, I don't know, but I love the dessert idea that it's just like, you know what, you're (laughs) going to enjoy this. Who cares? Mrs. Sherlock Holmes by Brad Ricca tells the true story of Mary Grace Winterton Quackenbos Humiston, a lawyer who was a crusader for justice for immigrants, women, and people with diminished rights. She was influential in solving a 1917 missing persons case of a wealthy young woman, Ruth Kruger, who disappeared suddenly from her home in New York City. 
Her work on this case led to creating a missing persons bureau in the NYPD. This book also tells about other cases Grace helped to investigate and litigate where persons of moderate means, especially poor immigrants, were being exploited and needed protection. Grace attended NYU, one of the first schools to admit women to their law program, and founded the People's Law Firm shortly after graduating. Her story is both enlightening and inspiring. So this book um, is actually one of our first, or it is the first nonfiction book that we've done this season. And it was actually, I had originally not had any nonfiction books on the list, but um, a friend had recommended this book to me and I was kind of looking over the books that I had chosen and I swapped one out um, for this one. And then when I asked you to be on my podcast, you selected it. So what... Um, what drew you to this book specifically? Well, I love a good lady. I love, I love (laughs) the ladies. I love strong women and I love murder. So the idea that I could have both his historical fiction that about a strong lady and then also a subject that I find to be completely fascinating. (laughs) And as someone that is, you know, I, I, I am fascinated by these stories that typically often re- revolve around crime or about around murder, a bit of a darker <laughs> subject, right? And, yeah. and then this was a woman that I had never heard of, and I was really intrigued to find out her story. And then I knew that, you know, and invo- something involving a cold case or a missing person, that's kind of what I gravitate towards a lot of times. And mm-hmm. I figured, yeah, if I'm going to talk about a book... I knew that someone that existed in the real world would be something that I could really identify with or that that was something that I was more interested in having a discussion on. Cool. So, yeah, this is going to be probably a little bit of a different kind of discussion than our fiction book um, discussions just because I feel like nonfiction and fiction, um, you know, there's a big difference between the two, the way they're written and the way obviously one's real, one's Mm not. Um, So you said you hadn't heard about Grace Humiston before reading the book. Um, were you, what, what inspired you about her after re- learning more about her? I think she's a great role model for not just going after like kind of trailblazing, but then also, you know, I work in public health. We work in a, com- I work in a community outreach department. Her, I think it's the people's um, law firm, just kind of like a lot of the cases that she was mm-hmm. taking on. Those are those are the individuals that I also find trying to identify ways to serve and to promote and, and advocate for. So she is kind of, even though it's in a law firm in 1920s New York, it, it seems like her her values and her interests really aligned with what I hope that my work aligns with as well. And so I think she mm-hmm. was just kind of inspiring and, and kind of this trailblazing of the strong woman that was going to get a bunch of stuff done and advocate for the people that are so often not advocated for. Yeah, I really liked her story. I mean, she was um, a graduate of NYU Law School. that, And I thought that was so cool that they had women accepted into law school like way and um, before Columbia did. And I thought it was just kind of really interesting. Now, you've lived in New York City. Is that I correct? Lived right, I lived right outside New York City. But yes. Okay, in Jersey. Yes, kind of. New Jersey. Was. Yeah. Okay, awesome. 
but you're you're a lot more familiar with New York City. I don't think I've actually ever been to New York City as an adult. Um, did you recognize any of the landmarks and stuff that they talked about? Yeah, and I actually then did a lot of Googling of, of what images of Harlem or of Lower East Side of these different places that were mentioned throughout the book because I was like, 19, you know, Manhattan, 19... 19- 15 Mm -hmm. or whatever and tried to look up some of these some of these images because the images certainly are very different than what my experience of Harlem is some of my friends lived up in Harlem when I was there so we had lots and lots and lots of fun good good memories up in Harlem so I thought that was kind of fun not that this girl goes missing but that she was spending time in Harlem where where I I was like oh I've been there I I have my own memories that span almost 100 years and so that yeah. was, you know, it's always interesting really cool. when you can have those personal memories. Yeah, you had that personal connection. And if I remember correctly um, from the book, Harlem, because Harlem is kind of now not so affluent. Is that correct? But Her back then it was like it, yeah. um, parts of Harlem la- or Harlem in the past was like the ritzy place. Is that correct? Is that kind of what they that's were saying? That's what I inferred from. And that's one of the reasons I started looking because there's quite a bit of quite a bit of Harlem. I would say the majority and I'm sure someone who is much more knowledgeable on Harlem, I'm going to get this wrong, but my experience is there are some affluent neighborhoods still in in greater Harlem, but for the most Mm -hmm. part, it is relatively low income. Yeah. So I think it's just kind of interesting to think about that. Um, And so what did you think about, um, so at the very beginning of the book, there's an anecdote about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's visit to New York. Mm. Um, and then of course the title of this is Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. And I, I kind of wondered what you thought about, um, that beginning, tying that into, I guess, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And I thought once that started off, I thought there was going to be a lot more comparison to Sherlock Holmes other than just that she was occasionally coined that in the, in papers or whatnot. Right. Yeah, I I remember it, it made again. It was like, what was my personal connection? I remember when we were really little. My mom, I'm guessing she must have liked Sherlock Sherlock Holmes, or we just happened to have a lot of his work in our house. But some of my earliest memories of reading are some of Sherlock Holmes stories, and so every I just like I love everything about him, but I don't know much about the author. And so reading just kind of that anecdote about his interaction in the hotels or like going to the prisons i i was like oh i i made me realize that what i know about sherlock holmes is truly just what's been written and i've never explored who his creator mm-hmm. was yeah no i thought his um doyle's um sort of persona he was very seemingly you know kind of flashy mm-hmm. and like kind of did a lot of um publicity stunt kind of a things was very interesting um just and I, I thought it was interesting that his, the conversation about suffrage that yes. he had and how he was anti-suffrage. And I just, it's so interesting to hear everyone's back in the day, their rationalizations of why, you know, they wouldn't give women the vote. It's so interesting to me. It was a good kind of foil to Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, who um, was just like clearly demonstrated that yes, women are smart and capable and um, can, you know, do everything that his character did which is investigate crimes and things like that so yeah and i i also love the piece or where it mentions like he was thinking about bringing sherlock holmes back to life even after he had 
you know, had had a hiatus because he had seemingly died and the author was decided to bring him back. And I was like, oh, I've never even thought about that because when you're reading something that's been published over 100 years ago, you don't recognize a seven or a 10 year gap in the, the mm-hmm. publications. You just think like, okay, there's more stories to read. Whereas the people that were probably following along and reading those as they were coming out just thought, okay, he's dead. And now there hasn't been a new story in seven years. We're done. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, yeah. he returns. Did you ever see the TV series Sherlock with um, Benedict Cumberbatch? I have not. Is it good? Oh, my gosh. I loved it so much. Like, I each episode is like 90 minutes long. So it's like a short movie. Wow. Um, But so but they're only like, I think there's like 16 total episodes. So it's not like, I mean, it doesn't take that much time out of your life. But um I really, really liked it, and um, they, the way they portrayed, because they go through, um, they basically, every episode is similar to one of his, one of the books, and so um, in one season, he does apparently die, and, you know, then later comes back to life, as you might expect um, from reading the books. I hope that's not a spoiler for anyone who oh, hasn't yes. heard of Sherlock Holmes before, but whatever. Oh, dear. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's all good. Um, I, when I first kind of read the book, I thought the title Mrs. Sherlock Holmes was a little like gimmicky. Cause I was like, I don't know. I was kind of like, well, she's a lawyer. She's not really a detective. And I kind of wondered if he was trying to just sell books, which is understandable. Authors got to eat too. Um, and I, but I, I kind of don't know. What do you think about that title? Do you really feel like it was appropriate or a good title? Yeah, so I'm. I was with you. I was kept looking for more of what I, what I hear Sherlock Holmes. What what the glamour that I assume will go with that tagline, and and maybe I'm wrong, but I think she was in the papers during the time someone mm-hmm. published that she was the Mrs. Like was Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. At which point, I think that's an appropriate link. And if you're kind of playing off that she was somebody else called her this because yes, yes I think one she can be she should just be her own name she shouldn't be the Mrs. version it was like whenever um, whenever you're trying to be like oh it's the it's the female version of Michael Phelps it's like no just call her Katie because Katie Ledecky or whatever her, yeah Katie Ledecky right. it's like she's not the female Michael Phelps she's Katie Ledecky and this is and she's it, awesome, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like you don't need to be the misses to be interesting. So I, I think that yeah. yes, I, I don't love the title of the book, but I'm not surprised in in what was mm-hmm. picked. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And you mentioned the media. That was so interesting. That was a big theme that was um, in the book where she would kind of come up against maybe. Um, a, a block of people not wanting to let her investigate or, or um, not supporting kind of in her favor. And she would encourage the media to kind of get involved and weigh in on um, sort of the human interest of like, hey, this isn't okay that we're letting, you know, these people die or we're letting, you know, this person hang for no reason or, you know, so mm-hmm. she would kind of pull the media in, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and I also thought it was interesting. They, on one of the stories, especially, was the Charlie Stilo case. Yes. Um, 
they had they talked about Inez, Inez Milholland and Sophie Irene Loeb, who were both journalists. And I think Inez was a lawyer, too. Um, I think they mentioned in passing Nellie Bly, who is also a journalist mm-hmm. who did a lot of undercover work. Um, I just thought it was like so interesting, um, the various women who were activists and really heavily involved and um, like were actually like literally working themselves to the bone um, to you know, make a difference in the world. I thought it was just super, really cool. I agree. And, and I think that's so true of the era based on what I've read or what I've seen thinking about suffrage and all of those women that we don't know their name or their stories that were really out there doing whatever, not like doing everything that they wanted to do without so many basic human rights, like, being able to vote or wear pants, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) own property. I'm not sure about, you know, but in, in there you find this and you kind of, sometimes you think like, wow, a pioneer or she was a trailblazer. And certainly I don't want to discredit the fact that she was up against a lot, but it's like, wait, well, there was tons of women doing this. We just Mm -hmm. didn't give them a platform to talk about it because we were terrified Mm -hmm. of what women taking over. I recommend it. Um, but that, I thought of that too, is just like all of a sudden it's like, wait, were either they all worked together. So every single successful woman was connected to each other or there was a ton of successful women and we just failed to write it down. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, we don't, we, we hear a lot about, uh, I would say the majority of women who, who had a certain, um, story maybe, and who were like, um, I think there were a lot of women who did have, a trajectory. It was a cultural norm, obviously, to sort of um, for wealthy women, I would imagine, to not have a have a career, you know, because poor poor women have always worked <laughs> outside the home, right? There's you know people making you know pennies a day. They've always done that, but for wealthier women, I think it was a com- more common story for them to maybe have certain passion projects, but to largely be um, focused on inside the home. And so, but I think they're, you're right that there are, we're definitely women who did not, and we don't always hear their story because it's overshadowed by other stories that are out there. Um, And so I, it was just really interesting and very inspiring to kind of these band of women who felt like it was a moral case. And I think they would kind of take the 1910s approach of um, women are the moral compass of the world. And that's why they felt like it was so important for them to fight for these um, rights and to to use their um, brains and use their skills to fight for um, what they felt was a moral cause. Um, I just felt like that was kind of reiterated over over and over in the book a little bit. I agree. So talking about the Ruth Kruger case, had you ever heard of that before? The 1917, um, that was, that's kind of the headliner case that is mentioned on, on the cover of the book. I had not heard of it. This was a brand new case for me. What had, what were your thoughts um, as the case unfolded? So the book kind of was in an interesting format where it would go into this Ruth Kruger case and then it would step back and kind of take on an earlier time frame of um, Grace's other Um, cases that she did but you kind of learn a little bit more every few chapters 
What, what were you thinking as the case unfolded? Well, I really wanted to know what was how ha- it was. The, it was the part of the book that I was most interested in. And I think I understand why the author broke those chapters up because I think if you had finished that case and then moved into when she goes to Sunnyside, I don't know if I would have kept, re- I mean, may I probably would have kept reading because it was interesting, but it was, it wasn't quite the page turner that Ruth's mm-hmm. case was. And, and so I was thinking, um, I originally thought that maybe there was a boyfriend kind of the, maybe the, the college aged no named boyfriend that her friends mm-hmm. maybe, maybe knew about, maybe didn't know about. But then it would say that was, that was a fleeting thought. And, and the, the more and more it was the case built against Alfredo Kochich. I think I'm saying his name right. What last name? Is? I listened to the book and they called him Kochi. Kochi. Um, oh. But I don't, now that I had to look up how his name was spelled and I'm like, okay, I don't know, whatever. Or Koki. No, sorry. No, they call him Koki, Koki. Um, in the book, in the audiobook. But I, I think it should be Kochi, but whatever. It's Koki or something. <laughs> Alfredo Kochi, also known as Alfredo Koki, if, we're, if you're an audiobook listener. I I was not surprised that that is, was the end. You know, kind of, the, that was the, the, the find, right? Was... Mm-hmm. Was I, I wasn't a big a big reveal to me that that was what had happened. I think some of the corruption yeah. and, and um, I thought it was you know I was I guess the whole time I was like oh she's already dead like I just yes now we hear about missing person cases and kidnapping cases and know that for the most part they don't live beyond like twenty four hours and it's you know it was tragic but I was kind of I was really rooting for like some miraculous. Um, <laughs> discovery um so but yeah i think i i agree with you i had the different theories yeah an elopement would have been better um i don't know that i thought she was a el- eloped i think i always thought she was a victim of a crime like she had been raped and then like maybe moved somewhere but um yeah so do you feel like we really got to the truth by the end of the book because I kind of didn't understand it could have been because I was listening to it but it kind of sounded like we get we found the body and we so we therefore know from circumstantial evidence who was involved but it the exact circumstance just never felt like we understood it very well I agree it's I there was a lot of gaps that I was I was confused about in in based on my own kind of timeline that I went back and thought like, okay, she was gone for like a couple of days to maybe one week before he left for back for Italy. And so that means, was it within the first 24 hours or was she trapped somewhere for a week? Like those were the things that I feel like mm-hmm. I was never clear on. And then obviously when, when you see kind of like, oh, and then you just got away, even though you have kind your answer of who was was the um, the murderer? It's kind of like oh, and that's it's just gonna end like that. Like there's not some big grand finale where justice mm-hmm. is served and and you know at least there's a little bit of of a a good outcome at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. I guess that's what real life is. It didn't feel exactly um, <laughs> as satisfying as I wanted it to be. Do you feel like we understood um, what Mrs. Koki's involvement was? 
I don't, I feel like that was to me one of the most unclear things about how much she knew or didn't know about them hiding the body. I feel like she knew based on when they were in the basement the first time when her mm-hmm. kind of a, a accomplice was pretending to work in the skate or the, in the repair shop and then was trying right. to get into the basement. I was like, oh, she knows because you would not behave that way or unless there was something else down there that they never found. Like maybe there was something mm-hmm. buried or who knows. But I was like, the your reaction tells me that you knew that there was something mm-hmm. that you did not want anyone to find. Right. She and then we found it out. And then when the, a yeah. body turns up, you're like, okay, well, I wonder what the thing that was you were trying to protect was. Right. Yeah. Why do you think that Grace had more success than the police in this um, case? Well, I mean... One, based on her persistence, she in her other cases, she didn't give up and she wasn't easily deterred and she wasn't afraid of the hard work. There was a lot of a lot of her other cases, I think a lot of other people would have given up or would not have been able to do what she did simply because of her perseverance. Mm-hmm. But I also think they, they talked about kind of the kickback about how the the law enforcement was involved with Kochi and and that was also a little bit confusing to me about how how there was this kickback about the whole white slavery about getting people to come over from Italy and then there was whenever police in that in the Harlem precinct would get some sort of incentive for, or he would there was kind of this relationship so I think that was part of it too whenever you've got folks that are incentivized to not pursue a certain lead because mm-hmm. they, they know more than they're letting on yeah, so the police corruption was definitely um, a kind of a theme in this book where, yeah, they had this kickback going on. Um, and then just like the idea of, um, I think I think I saw, I, oh, so I, again, I listened to those books, so, so I wasn't always, I don't know, sometimes when I listen to books, I don't get the exact wording, but someone, you know, one of the police folks or one of the sort of the the men in charge um, said there's no such thing as abduction, a basically kind of, you know, victim blaming saying that there's no, if, if the person was raped or the person was abducted, it's essentially their fault. There's no such thing as like being kidnapped. Um, and I just feel like that was such a big part of it too. Um, really just even believing people's stories and um, will, just going so quickly to victim blaming um, and that culture was so interesting. And I think you're right that it largely was, it probably was very largely impacted and influenced by who the biggest lead was um, because that person was a crony. Um, they're like, well, it, you know, they, they're disincentivized to to pursue that. I Yeah, and then you think about folks that are victims in, in 2019 and we still say things like victim blaming and mm-hmm. and all sorts of really sad sad language is used around outcomes that people certainly did not do to themselves and you know I think yeah. I, I remember there was one of those history like museum shows on a couple weeks ago and Tim and I were watching it and it was the 1960 or the 1865 election. I'm sure the 1864 election or whatever year there was Mm -hmm. an election in the the 1860s. And 
it was talking about one of the first years that the the journalism got involved in reporting on and promoting elections Hmm. and it was and the one person was supposed to win and I wish I could tell you who ended up winning but basically the whole the gist of it was that they were talking about like revealing corruption in politics and working towards a, an opportunity where people aren't bribed or whatever. And you're like, oh, well, what's well, been 150 years and we still are like, you know, you're like, oh, wait, if, if these people, if 100, you know, 150 years ago, they're like, okay, these are our big, our big obje- objectives in 20 years, we're going to take care of political corruption. It's like, I wish I could tell them what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's like the rest of the story. You had no idea how much corruption there would be. I yeah. mean, it's, on the one hand, it's like, I suppose it's heartening to know that corruption isn't something that's new, that it's yeah. always been around, I guess. But it's also disheartening to think like the same thing. It's not new. It's always been around. And right. it's, it's potentially never going anywhere. And that's what I thought about the victim blaming too, was just like, Oh, where we keep talking about like we're gonna deal with victim blaming because it's unacceptable and it's twenty eighteen, but people in twenty seventeen could or in nineteen seventeen could have been saying, Okay, we've got to do something about victim blaming. It's nineteen seventeen, this is unacceptable. And I know that there are I'm not saying we haven't made advancements because we have made huge advancements, but sometimes you see those parallels and think, Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, we've got a lot of work yet to do. Yeah, and I think um, that was one of the things that I think Grace Humiston did do um, as as far as where it goes um, to missing persons. She was so influential in making it seem like kind of raising people's awareness that this is a problem. I think the idea that people had wanted to be, you know, people who were missing who wanted to be lost was so pervasive um, in the people who were in power to find them that, you know, she was influential in creating this Bureau of Missing Persons with the New York Police Department. Um, you know, basically say, you know, and there was one statistic that was said there was basically a thousand to 1,500 girls disappearing yearly in New York, um, in the 1910s. So, um, definitely, um, it was, it was a problem. And I think she kind of shown, uh, shown a spotlight on it. Um, so really, really cool. And I think the other thing that I thought was really interesting because, you know, again, the books, the book focused on at least the headline was this Ruth Kruger case. And so you thought the whole book was, I thought the whole book was going to be about this, but it really ended up being about like a lot of the different cases that she worked. But one, the, the theme that was running through it was really this human trafficking piece and the peonage um, as part of that as well. So human trafficking can be for sex, but it can also be for just any unpaid labor, anything that you're forced. It's any kind of thing where you're forced into doing something that you don't want to do. Um, And I just thought that was interesting. It was really sort of the reason why Ricka wrote this book was because of, you know, missing piece, missing persons that he saw um, being, you know, advertised on you know like the milk box essentially um and i just thought that was such an interesting i had not known anything about the peonage in the south with the turpentine camps and the lumber camps and the cotton plantations and things like that where immigrants were coming over who um had not 
essentially they were they were coming over with and, and as soon as they arrived they were indebted to their employer to such a degree that they couldn't get out and they had to work for essentially free um and and it was just the conditions were crazy so i thought it was super interesting yeah that i knew very little about all of that and this is how much i know about this brings full circle but eaton pats was the first child to, or the first person to be put on a milk carton so he was a oh. little boy and he was i believe like five or six and he disappeared in the late 70s early 80s in manhattan and wow they were trying to figure out like what you know how do his like what are his friends like what are five and six year olds that might see him and and i don't know all of the ins and the outs about why they mm-hmm. moved for like how the milk carton became the milk carton kids yeah. or something like that but right. um Yes, he he was. I don't think he's he's ever been found. I could be wrong. I, I do yeah. know that his name is the first person that was ever put on the yeah. the mill carton. The rest of it is a little fuzzy. Yeah. No, I think that's. Um, I yeah, I think that's just the sad thing about these missing per- missing persons cases um, is just that they're they're super hard to solve and. Um, and, I, and the case goes cold really quickly, I think, with these is what I understand. And there's been um, so much, I think a lot of the strides that have been made in the last, just like you're saying, like that was the 70s with milk carton kids. Um, you know, the Amber Alert system is not that old. It's only like 20 years old or something like that. So a lot of um, strides have been tried to make, been made, but I think we still have such a long way to go because there's such tough cases to crack. Um, and I think, so for example, I work for a healthcare system here in my town currently, and there's like a statistic where, you know, the vast majority of people who are being human trafficked, um, actually encounter the healthcare system because they are being, you know, whatever their type of work that they're being forced to do, um, is bad on their health. And so they're constantly coming to the healthcare system. And so um, it's a question is like, how can we better readily identify folks who are being trafficked and get them help? And a lot of people, um, you know, there's just so much psychology going into it. And there's so much um, tied up in the fact um, with their abusers. Um, It's really, really tough, I think, to get out. But it is... um, they listed a statistic at the end of the book about 100 to 300,000 children at risk of entering U.S. sex trade in 2014. And that is just so heartbreaking to me. Um, And then just like basically almost a million people, 600 to 800,000 people being trafficked across international borders in 2014. Um, 80% female and 50% children, which is just like staggering. It's just really sad to me. It's super sad. Um, and it's just interesting that this is something, again, as old as time um, and, and really sad. What did you think? Another theme um, that I that I thought was really interesting was the immigration and immigrant rights. Was there anything that stood out to you about that? Well, I'm thinking of the one of the earlier cases, and it was when she got the woman a maybe death gross and she was in New mm-hmm. Jersey. I can't remember her name. They were also in Antoinette Tola. Yes. Yeah. Antoinette Tola and her story. Just thinking about like what, 
you know, her experience was and how she didn't have representation and didn't, didn't have, or had major language barriers and felt trapped into a situation where she, she took matters into her own hands and and then Mm -hmm. was able to have such great representation to reverse a, a death sentence. And then, you know, thinking about the, so those those gimmicks about we'll pay your your ferry over to the states, but then you're kind of in these working conditions that you didn't you would never have signed up for if that's what you if you were given the full information. So this mm-hmm. whole idea that you can prey on people that are looking for a better opportunity or see the United States as this really great life change, but really people are just predators. And mm-hmm. have are only using people to exploit them, which is really bums me out because if we're going to talk about parallels, that's certainly something that is still happening. And when we think about folks that mm-hmm. are immigrants in this country, you know, the, the, the opportunities that might not happen simply because of where they were born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely saw the parallels there. And um, just so interesting that, I mean, so I kind of got the impression from just from reading the book, and I would say it's probably still the case, New York City, um, back then, and maybe today even too, was just a city of immigrants, um, like a vast, like tons and tons of immigrants. I know there's still tons of immigrants now too. But it was just interesting to see kind of the people who um, had one leg up, you know, by being here, you know, 10 or 50 years before another immigrant were able, like, they just, they kind of were doing the same thing that they were doing. Um, you, you, you mean, like, cycles, yeah. Yeah. It was, okay. yeah. It's, right. So it's just like, um, they're exploiting the people who are coming in after them. And I was reading this book while I was in Rome. Um, it's called Clash of Civilizations in an Elevator in Piazza Vittoria. But um, I think, <laughs> anyway, but um, I'll, but anyway, but they were kind of, it's a modern day telling of, um, of this group of people who live in this um, apartment complex in Rome. And they were basically saying, you know, the Italians, and I think it's true of the Americans, but the Italians treat immigrants the way that Italian immigrants were treated in America, you know, or it's just like, it's kind of this common thing where, you know, the new kid is always being um, bullied or pestered or something. I think it's, I think it's kind of partly human nature. And I think it's something that I hope we overcome but it's definitely a theme that I see kind of over and over again is that whenever there's a newer um, population or a newer person um, we see them being persecuted in the same ways that the person who was new but is now you know 10 years older um, was when they when they arrived so it's interesting yeah it's the whole I'll get mine mindset where you'll mm-hmm. do anything to get what you think you're owed and then not protect you know, in those opportunities, the one, the opportunities that you got, you feel like you worked really hard for and you're mm-hmm. less inclined to let anybody else have the same opportunity, even if somebody let you have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the whole thing around pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. It's like, what if you were born without boots? What, how am I supposed to pull myself up from my bootstraps? If mm-hmm. you know, or another one was like to use all of these like fun little, like, 
anecdotes. It's a lot of people. Oh, how when they get this right? A lot of people will say they hit a home run, but really they were born on third base or whatever. It's like you got mm-hmm. home, but you started so much closer to home base. Right. But then you'll be mad at the person that hit a home run and also got to first base, but they started at the home. They had they had so much harder to work, and yet mm-hmm. you know there's just this weird idea that. I deserve this thing and you getting it means I don't get it either. Yeah. And I just think it's just interesting. I mean, I think there's, um, there's so many different perspectives and I I think we're all a little bit blind to, um, we, we think life should be fair and it just isn't. And we're not, and we're sort of blind to the ways that, um, we were privileged. I think it's easy to do or, or to think that, um, you know, I had it hard for me, so it should be hard for you instead of maybe working together synergistically to, to try to make it easier for everyone. Um, was there any specific case in this book that really c- you connected with? I mean, I liked Ruth's case the most. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of similarities. Like I don't, there's not like anyone in my life that's been missing or any, right. like, I don't, I don't know anyone that, I had similar experience that having mm-hmm. gone through that, but I think it does. And, and I think what, what I was interested in reading about is when you, you think about the staggering number of girls that were going missing and, and also mm-hmm. girls that are currently going, going missing in the United States. When we see the poster child of the one that we want to save, I mean, Ruth fits the bill of, who was mm-hmm. going to, her body was going to be found and people were going to care. It's, she's this very mm-hmm. pretty or conventionally pretty 17 year old with a family money and the platform to continue to say, no, you're not doing what we expect and no, you're not doing what we think you should be doing. So we have other alternatives and we have the resources. So I think her story was the most intriguing to me because I knew basically from the beginning how it was going to play out based on historically this this kind of profile, this demographic, this pretty, white, rich, young mm-hmm. girls are always the ones that we care about. So mm-hmm. part of me wanted to read it and be like, something different is going to happen in this narrative, even though knowing going back in history, you're even less likely to find something, a derivative than the, mm-hmm. the norms. But I, and, and I think the reason that I also connected with this case the most it was it was the most in depth it was the one that there was just the most narrative and and information on and and twists and turns where the cases with some of the, the plantation or the plants or whatnot was just kind of like here was a bunch of information and mm-hmm. then she went and she kind of wrote her report and off she went yeah um no, there's two things I wanted to comment on. Comment on. One, like you said, um, Ruth Kruger's case, she was a sympathetic character. And I think we often fall into the trap of not um, feeling as appalled when people who are not sympathetic characters come into um, harm. So like if this person had been sort of loose morally or whatever you want to say, if she had I been guess. kind of sleeping around right high risk thank you um if she had been someone like that i think it's still a crime to kill someone you know and we, we but i think it, it is tougher i think it's um it's kind of sad i think we're we're at a point in history where i think we're trying to say you know everyone deserves 
a fair shake and a fair trial and to you know have their case honestly looked at it you know her her morals had no um impact and should have no relevance on her right to having um an investigation into her her missing persons case so the second thing was yeah i agree that um she had that case was the most well written and i i don't know did you and, and as you we mentioned kind of we already like we are we kind of know why he did the way he wrote the book where it was like Ruth Kruger and then another case and then Ruth Kruger, then another case, because basically Ruth Kruger's case was the most compelling and interesting. It's why people picked up, picked up the book because it was on the front cover. Um, and so it kind of drew you out, but I, I don't, did you find that distracting? Cause I felt like I was getting into it. Like he would tell it a different case. Now we get into it. And then it's like, okay, well then we go back to Ruth and I have to remember, okay, well who is Koki again? Like I just have to remember all these facts and it was difficult um, to follow it sometimes. Yeah. Yes. I agree. There were some times when I had to, and I think I, this book was took me longer than it usually takes me to read a book. I had to start it and stop it a couple of times simply because I needed a break. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I agree. There were times when I just wanted one of them to wrap up. I was like, okay, I can only follow so many storylines or, okay. I, I figured out the pattern of this book, which means I'm halfway through it. And I still mm-hmm. don't know the end of Ruth's case, but I know that I'm, it's not like I'm just going to read a little bit more and find out I'm, we're going to do a lot. There's, you know, the, the train's going to go to a lot of other stations along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was really, I, so it was an interesting book because I was listening to it. So I was able to do it while I was doing errands and things. And so like I have it on in the car and I get to the grocery store and like I wouldn't want to get out of the car because I was like really interested in the story. So the actual, the, the way the story was written was very it kept me really engaged for the mo- even even the the non Ruth stories that were in there. It was very interesting. All the different cases that she was solving, um, but it was definitely distracting when it was just going back and forth all the time. So I, I thought he, he his writing was really compelling and driving, but the back and forth was distracting. So, do you think this book will have a lasting impact on you? I think she's somebody I am probably going to reference because she is such a cool historical figure and just knowing the scope of the work that she did. I also think with some of the peonage things, I, I, there was a lot I did not know about that. So just sometimes when you have those weird facts, when people are like talking about something, you're like, wait, actually, did you know in 19, the 1910s, these really crazy immigration schemes were happening where people were coming over I can see the like that sticking with me. I don't know if mm-hmm. Ruth's, Ruth's case will stick with me just because there's so many. Unfortunately, there's. Right. Yeah. While it captured the nation in 1917, it does feel um, like a tale as old as time, unfortunately. Um, I think the things that will stick with me are the peonage stuff because I, that was just so fascinating. I had no idea, um, that these things existed. Um, yeah. And I, I think also just the way immigrants were treated and some of the cases that she talked about how, you know, um, the case where she ended up essentially losing it. She fought it, but she was out of town or something. There was an immigrant from Russia who had brought his yes. wife over. Who? Oh my gosh! Um, she got the baby. pregnant. 
And I guess she was kind of having like some depression or something after like during pregnancy. And so essentially he takes her to the hospital to be treated. He doesn't realize he's signing away his like her rights and sending her to become a ward of the state. And they decide, well, if you're the ward of the state, then we're going to deport you. And they, they caught that one. They got that fixed. And then um, she basically is going to have like she had a baby like on Ellis Island or something or some on, like on a ship in America. Um, and because they, they tried to deport her again because they kept they kept trying to deport her um, because she kept having um, health needs. And so like she ended up having her baby um, on this ship and then they like were trying to get him trying to get them say not to be deported because now you have an American citizen. You can't deport an American citizen. Um, but I guess they didn't where they weren't in time, I think. And they ended up going back to Russia. Isn't that right? Yes. I, I remember that one. I was so disappointed and I was hoping that there would be some sort of arc back where they came back and they were able to fight and yada, but it, it seemed that maybe they just decided to stay in Russia. Yeah. I mean, it's just so tough. And I think just over and over again, I love the people's law firm that, you know, she has, I think the, the line was, um, you know, for people of moderate means or something, you know, trying to, she did so much of her work for free or, um, you know, for low cost. It's just, I just love that she used her privilege as a rich woman. Um, and I think she was just married for the sake of the fact that she had access to money. Cause it sounded <laughs> like from both of her marriages that she had, um, weren't really that, um, she wasn't as invested in the marriage <laughs> and they weren't either. Um, but it was just kind of like, you almost had to have a, be married as a woman in that age to have the freedom of movement that she wanted to have. Um, so I just, I, I think her entire life is very fascinating to me. And, um, I think that will impact me for a while. So now it's time, um, the part of the podcast where we share recommendations with our listeners. So I'm going to, um, ask Melody to go first. Melody, what is making you happy or bringing you joy lately? So Two weeks ago, I went to this really amazing conference and one of the speakers was Oprah. And so I got to see Oprah wow. in the flat. I also got to see so cool. President Barack Obama, which I just cried. Get basically. out. Yes, I, it's true. It was amazing. He's amazing. And that was not a surprise to me. Also, Sir Richard Branson, which of like the Virgin Empire, Virgin Mobile, Virgin Records and all that good stuff. He was, I liked him quite a bit. But with Oprah, she just, I mean, was amazing for a whole hour. Just truly being in her presence was, it was amazing. But one of the things that she talked about that I loved was, I mean, she is so just like, maybe it's with her age or I don't know. But she did, it was so unapologetic, which I liked because a couple of times that she just got these blatant compliments where I think so often we see women say, oh, no, no, I'm not that. Or like, oh, I think you're mistaken. She would just be like, yeah, I'm not a national treasure. I'm a global treasure. Or yes, I'm a very <laughs> wealthy woman. And one of, the awesome. things, one of the things though that she did say related to her wealth, and she said when she went to, she was living on the East Coast and she went to someone that she in her mind was incredibly wealthy. They had a really nice house, really nice cars. And she said, but the thing that blew her away was she was standing and she saw how many trees this woman had on her property. 
And that was when she decided that if she ever had any money, she would have trees. And of course, that's some those those decisions that you make, you forget about. And she said, recently, she looked out in her backyard and all of a sudden was like, oh my God, the trees. I have the trees. I Yes, I have the cars. Yes, I have the house. But I have the trees that I always said that I wanted to have. And I was like, oh my God, what a great way to think about your wealth or what you have isn't you can have all the great things but like do you have your trees so I'm trying to think of like one I want I would love I mean I used to have a tree in my backyard it fell over it was a huge thing we had to get a crane in our alley oh they, they chipped it the, the crane had to take it up and over <laughs> the power lines I have some amazing videos so I don't have any trees right now but kind of that idea that find the thing that you don't have to be wealthy to get the thing, but what's the one thing that you really want to have? And maybe it's trees. Um, so I, I've been trying to think about that as a mindset of like, oh my God, they're like, oh my gosh, there is the trees or there is that, that bit of it for me. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the mindset I've been trying to, you know, what, what Oprah does something that I think I should, you know, what a great person to, to follow advice from. And then I, keeping with the nonfiction recommendations, I have been trying to read the top New York Times bestsellers of 2018. And pre, like right before I read this, I read Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs. And she is the daughter, the oldest daughter of Steve Jobs. And it's, it's her memoir. She's in her maybe 40 or 41. And it was... Parts of it were a really hard read simply because I think we live in a culture that idolizes Steve Jobs. And I'm not saying that his advancements to technology haven't been groundbreaking. I think Apple will probably revolutionize healthcare at some point. I think some of the, like the monitors around their Apple watch and people with like heart, like with uh, you, you can start to sense thing on your, on your Apple watch that will determine certain heartbeats is what I'm mm -hmm. hearing. And I think that's amazing. And yes, he's hmm. the pioneer for that. But reading about him as a father, I was like, it was it was a, a very eye opening book to read. So small fry. I, I recommend awesome. it. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Those are my two recommendations. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, what I'm going to recommend this time is first of all, for those who were who just loved Mrs. Sherlock Holmes and were into sort of the murder mystery piece of it and also like the time frame of like the 1910s and 20s. Um, there is a fictional um, series, TV series that is Austra from Australia and it's on Netflix. It's called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and I absolutely love it. It I just recommend it. It's really, really fun. Very female forward. Um, really, really fun um, series. So I recommend that. And then the second thing that I want to recommend is actually um, I started a book by a new author. Um, it's in the romance genre, which surprise, surprise for all my listeners who know I love romance. Um, it's Tessa Dare and she is really fun. I read two books um, by her back to back. I just thought she was really fun. They're probably, I, I do give a steaminess scale and it's like probably like an eight or a nine on the steaminess scale for those who are interested, which is kind of what um, brings me to my recommendation is the, what I loved, I 
when I when I read this on my phone, which is what I usually do, read these books on my phone, you have to kind of skip past the dedication to get to the actual book. You have to go, you know, page by page. I can't just flip to chapter one. And so I flipped past the dedication and it was to her dad who um, she describes herself as a preacher's kid and the heroine of the story um, was a vicar's daughter. And But I loved that she said, thanks, dad. This book's for you. Please don't read chapters 7, 9, 11, 17, 19, 21, or 28. And I just like, I laughed out loud when I read that. Like, she's so awesome. And then I read, as I said, another book by her um, just a few days later. And she dedicated it to her children. And she says, um, basically... Um, darlings, I love you both. I promise that out of all my books, this is the one and only page I'll ever force you to read. And then she says, bonus, I've now embarrassed you in front of thousands of strangers. Mom achievement unlocked. And I just thought her dedication game was so strong. Um, not only did I like her books, but I just thought she was super witty and funny in her dedication and just made me chuckle and laugh and brought me joy. I love that. What was her name again? Tessa Dare. That's got to be a pen name. It may be. I don't know. Um, I, I, it's kind of funny. I read a, one of her books and I was like, I swear I've read this before. And I didn't tell my husband that because he would have just said, Catherine, all the books you've read are the same. They're all these, you know, uh, you read one, you know, um, whatever, you know, romance book. They're all the same. But I just thought it was fun. I, ha- I hadn't read, according to my Goodreads account, I had not read anything by Tessa. So. Well, that's her real name. I just Googled her. So it just sounded like a, oh, did you? <laughs> a very good romance writer name. So she was born into it. It was, it was destiny. It was. What can we say? Well, Melody, thank you so much for coming to, on my podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Infinitely Prefer a Book. Share the love by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, tagging me on Instagram at book, or emailing me at book at gmail.com. Let me know which of Grace Hummiston's cases fascinated you the most. Check out the show notes to see a list of books mentioned and our recommendations from today's episode. Next month's book will be Salt Houses by Hala Alyan. Happy reading.